There's just something about Ted Cruz and this modern era of suburban women moving toward the Democratic Party that I think makes this competitive. Whether this is competitive at the end, who knows? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, July 20th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about what's likely to be the most attention-grabbing Senate race in the country next year, Texas, where Democrats are hoping to knock off their number one Bond villain, Ted Cruz. But is Texas a shiny distraction from all the other Senate seats Dems have to protect in 2024? Abby and I break out the maps. And later, Lauren Sherman and Ben Landy talk about her interview with designer Alexander Wang, breaking his silence after his sexual assault scandal. And Lauren shares what she's hearing in Paris about why Francois Pinot wants to buy CAA. We'll dig into all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy thursday everybody welcome to the powers that be we all know there's a presidential race on the calendar next year but there are also myriad senate house and governor's races which you know are also kind of important but i have abby livingston here today to talk about the Senate map in 2024. And in particular, Abby, I wanna ask you to name the third of these three villains. There are three Republican senators up for re-election next year that Democrats would love to get rid of. One is Missouri's Josh Hawley. Another is Florida's Rick Scott. Who's the third, my friend? 
I would think that would be Senator Ted Cruz from the great state of Texas. And out of the, those three, it's probably the one Democrats are most optimistic about, which, uh, you know, a few years ago would have shocked both of us if someone had said that. So I want to talk to you about that. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the two biggest states in the country, which both have Senate races next year. First, Texas, then California, Democratic controlled state. Ted Cruz even says he's the number one target for Democrats. He's obviously out of a factory for Democratic supervillains, this guy, and he always has been. Beto O'Rourke came 2.6 points within beating Ted Cruz back in 2018, a huge Democratic year. Beto ran for governor uh, last year, did not do so well against Greg Abbott. Cruz has drawn multiple challengers on the Democratic side. The biggest one, of course, is Colin Allred, who represents a district in Congress just outside of Dallas. Former NFL linebacker, sort of moderate patina, but came in in the 2018 wave, can raise money. I think he's raised like $6 million. Why after last year, (laughs) when Beto really got smoked, uh, I know governors and Senate races are generally different. Why are Democrats so hopeful that Colin Allred, if he wins the Democratic nomination, can take out Ted Cruz next year? Is it just because it's a presidential year and the dynamics are different? Well, I think the two things I take from this, I think one... It took me a long time to sort of digest the 2018 Senate race where O'Rourke nearly defeated Cruz. And I think there's been some eye rolling, you know, he lost and, you know, he still lost. But this was super close. And there has not been a statewide race in Texas that was this close in decades. And there was on the ground a sense of momentum toward the end that if this race had gone on for another week or so, O'Rourke could have won. So, you know, you go into 2020. And you think that in the back of your mind, and John Cornyn's up for re-election, and Cornyn had a healthy margin. I don't remember it exactly, but he did fine. Mm-hmm. And then the 2022, Greg Abbott is up for re-election, and he wins by a healthy margin against Beto O'Rourke. And mm-hmm. what I am taking into the next cycle, the presidential contest will have an effect on this, and Republicans will argue that helps them. I, I'm not sure. I think it's an open hypothesis. But mm-hmm. the factor here is Ted Cruz. I think he is a uniquely weak statewide candidate for where Texas is right now. I'm not going to undercut his ability to run a campaign. They are very strategic. They run a lot of analytics. These are smart guys. But there's just something about Ted Cruz and this modern era of suburban women moving toward the Democratic Party that I think makes this competitive. Whether this is competitive at the end, who knows? The second thing is, and I think this is really not paid attention to, But in Texas, there aren't many Democrats who have run in competitive races. It seems like every year the Democrats put up some candidate who has no idea of how sophisticated federal politics is. Texas and Florida in particular are such huge states that their political class is very parochial and insular. And there's just not a lot of awareness of how things work outside of the state system, the state political system. And so Allred is unique because he won a battle. He won a Republican seat in 2018. This isn't just any Republican seat. This is the seat that represented George W. Bush. This is old money in the heart of Dallas, Texas. And Allred won. He ran again in 2020 and he expanded his margin and Republicans sort of backed off of him because he was so effective. He's grown up in North Dallas. He played football at Baylor. He's the same age as me. I remember him Mm -hmm. playing. Um, He's very well known around the state. And he proved in the last two weeks he is a prodigious fundraiser. And when you are a competitive House candidate, if you know anything, it is how to raise money. He has been a part of the Nancy Pelosi 
DCCC operation. And so this is a sophisticated federal candidate running against Ted Cruz. That's exactly right. And I think I think you're right, too, about just a side note. I know Democrats have been pulling their hair out for years, asking like why there isn't a deeper bench of candidates, in particular Hispanic candidates in Florida and Texas. It's just because, you know, the, the bench is overrun in the state capitals by Republicans. But Collins' appeal is interesting. Uh, half black, half white. So maybe, you know, he can appeal to black voters in Dallas and Houston in the cities while also, you know, the suburbs uh, where his district is. And Beto lost by almost 10 points in 2022. But I think one of his biggest challenges was at that point, he was so well known in the state. Yes, that was good for Democrats. He was going into places and and counties that Democrats rarely went to. But he because he was more of a known commodity after running for president, after being out there in the national press, he was much more polarizing within the state. And he kind of like Stacey Abrams in Georgia aggravated Republicans a lot. So they showed up to beat him. Colin is less well-known statewide. And so he has much more of that like fresh face appeal, kind of in the same way Beto O'Rourke did back in 2018. And if he can put on the friendly Baylor linebacker face for a lot of people in Texas compared to the Harvard guy that everyone loves to hate, Ted Cruz, (laughs) are Democrats worried, Abby, that this race, because it'll be so hot and get so much attention, so much national money flowing into it, that it'll be like that Amy McGrath Senate race in Kentucky, where this state was too much of a reach for Democrats. And yet grassroots progressives all over the country were like, saw her go viral on social media and they sent her five bucks because Democrats, if you look at the Senate map, all the seats that are competitive right now, Michigan, Montana, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Ohio, West Virginia, Democrats are playing defense in all of those or their open seats in blue states. Like And national Democrats want to make sure they protect those seats before going after the reach states. So are Democrats in Washington a little worried that Colin Allred's going to get too much attention? Okay, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, So one, I think (laughs) at a baseline, Democrats hope that there's enough money that Republicans have to pull. There's a finite amount of money, even in this era, that they might have to pull money from an offensive state into a defensive. The Mm -hmm sort of MO of national politics is you protect your incumbents before you go on offense and Cruz is that incumbent. You mentioned several things else. So in Texas, it's really hard, and this is my home state, it's really hard to run as a local candidate and local candidates, especially from places like Houston and Dallas, think that they're a big damn deal and no one's heard of them outside of a hundred miles from where they live. So, but Allred does come from the largest media market in the state. I think a central question here is, I think it's already evident he's going to run a more disciplined campaign than Beto O'Rourke ran. But my question is, is he going to have the charisma that Beto O'Rourke had? And it, it was mm. it was almost surreal to look back at how many people were following O'Rourke around. I, mm. I just, I don't know. I think it's an open question. He's been enormously successful locally. I mean, Republicans will push back. And they, they do say that this is a law of diminishing returns. In 2020, John Cornyn had an opponent in a woman named MJ Hager, and she had a Mm -hmm. huge, I I guess this sounds brutal, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg dividend after the passing of the Supreme Court justice, she raised a ton of money and it really didn't move the needle. Mm -hmm. So I think in a lot of these states, and we'll talk about this on California, sometimes you need just enough money to be competitive. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they'll be able to make a boogeyman of all right. It takes a long time to build that sort of negative image in your opposition. It can almost take years. I think with Nancy Pelosi, it really didn't 
settle in until 2010. And she'd already been speaker for four years by then. So I think it takes time to to build that sort of image. We should note a couple things. Democrats haven't won a statewide race in Texas in like 30 years. Was who, who was the last one? I think it was 94. And it was like Bob Bullock, the lieutenant governor, and a couple other statewide officials. But basically, 98 was sort of the death of the Democratic Party. Gotcha. And we should also mention that State Senator Roland Gutierrez uh, yes. from South Texas is in the Democratic primary. You might recognize him from uh, the news because he was all over the news after the Uvalde shooting advocating for gun control. So he's also running for the Democratic nomination, although it's uh, pretty fair to say that Colin Allred would be the preference of national Democrats. Before we transition to California, Abby, real quick, I just feel like informally for the dorks out there who, who listen to us, I'm going to start an informal tradition with you now that we're talking state by state races where I ask you a pop quiz question about oh boy. someone on the ballot in 2024. No, it's all fun. Jackie Rosen, the incumbent senator from Nevada, who I feel like a lot of people don't know. I learned mm-hmm. this about her recently. What was her summer job when she first moved to Nevada back in the uh, 80s? This feels like an almanac of American politics question. <laughs> I'm going to guess something casino related, but I yes, have no earthly idea. On. Okay. She was a cocktail waitress at Caesar's Palace. Uh, I, while, I, I while didn't want to go down that road. But yes. Yeah. No, okay. I know. She just, yeah. And like, I, I don't know. I just, you know, been reading about all these uh, candidates and senators lately. I feel like she's little known as she had no, like no political experience before running for the house back in the day. Anyway, fun fact, we'll continue this tradition on future podcasts, Abby. And I guarantee you, I'll uh, make sure that you get at least 50% of them right. Um, last thing I want to ask you, you wrote about this. Um, my adopted home state of California also has a Senate race, Democratic controlled state. So all the action is in on, in the Democratic Party. I know they have a nonpartisan jungle primary here, but the front runners are Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, uh, and Barbara Lee up from the Bay Area. All three members of Congress, the first two of them, prodigious fundraisers, they just announced their fundraising totals. What were the headlines for you? And what does it signal for who's in the best shape and who's best positioned in this Senate race? Uh, well, Adam Schiff raised more than $8 million last quarter, and it was Republicans did him the favor of favors by voting to censure him. I have not gone line by line to assess the date, but he he far outpaced Katie Porter and even more Barbara Lee. But I was sort of flipping through Schiff and Katie Porter's reports. I haven't gotten to Barbara Lee's yet, but there were an astonishing number of $15, $50 type donations, which means these candidates can keep coming back to these. And mm-hmm. if either one of these people becomes a U.S. senator, they're going to be a juggernaut to help other Senate candidates and anything in the future. Yeah. I mean, I, I texted you last week. I, I'm not in Schiff's district, but the guy, I guess, who lived in the house before me, like gets his direct mail and he's just been black. Like that's aside from all the digital fundraising and the text messaging and all the stuff that Democrats are getting old school direct mail. Adam Schiff just blasts people in California saying he's under attack from Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and right wing MAGA freaks in Congress. And that's clearly been a fundraising boon. And that's on top of, unlike Katie Porter, you know, living in a basically non-competitive district for a long time, he's able to transfer over tons and tons of money from his other federal account to his Senate race. So, I mean, he's he's very well positioned in terms of money, even though the polls this early, it's still kind of a jump ball, even though him and Porter are technically in the lead. Well, one other thing about it that was sort of under the hood of the car on this is he has a bunch of congressional endorsements, and those may not mean much to a lot of people, but he has, I think, 
10 from California Mm -hmm. and nobody knows those districts better than the incumbents. So he has advisors Mm -hmm. in the form of members of Congress who can help him. But one thing, Barbara Lee, and you may know this better than me because I don't, I lived in LA for a summer, but Schiff Mm -hmm. and Porter may be sharing a media market with LA. I don't know if Orange County fits into that, but Barbara Lee has San Francisco on her Mm -hmm. own or the Bay Area. There are a bunch of other candidates. These are just the ones who are the most organized and have raised the most money. And in my world, they're members of Congress. So I pay more attention to them. Yeah. Well, if you didn't know, and you live in California, Katie Porter is a mom with a whiteboard, apparently, no, uh, and a mom with a say. minivan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, every single pre-roll fundraising ad from Katie Porter. I'm not a politician. I'm just a mom with a whiteboard. Give me money. Abby, thank you so much for joining me. Can't wait to do this more as we head into 2024. Thanks for having me, Peter. When we come back, Lauren Sherman is here to talk about her interview with Alexander Wang. Welcome back, everybody. Ben Landy here with Lauren Sherman. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. Lauren, I want to ask you about what you're hearing about fashion mogul Francois Pinot possibly buying the talent agency CAA. But first of all, you got a very interesting first interview with Alexander Wang. His first exclusive interview since his harassment scandal sort of pushed him into pseudo cancellation. I guess I was surprised that his brand is actually selling about as well as ever. It, it seems like this comeback that he's looking for, partially in talking to you, is as much about recovering his reputation and respect in the industry as much as it is about commercial success. But what surprised you about this conversation with him? I think the biggest surprise, you know, I usually, Alex, I've talked to a million times over the years, sometimes reviewing fashion shows. So we're talking more about the creative process or whatever asking what's your inspiration, all that kind of stuff that I hate. But um, (laughs) also he is a business person and has been participating in the running of his business since he was 21 years old. He's gone in and out of being the CEO of his company. I've also had very extensive business conversations with him. And this was the first time, you know, I did a lot of reporting on the allegations of sexual assault against him in end of 2020, early 2021. And I did not speak to him during that period. I talked to many of his accusers, talked to a lot of people around him. But, you know, I kind of thought maybe I would never speak to him again. He was really upset that the press sort of he was very much a golden boy that everybody loves you, Alex, that kind of person. And suddenly a lot of writers who he thought were his quote unquote supporters were suddenly turning against him. That's how he would put it. You know, I think everyone, including me, would just say we were doing our job. But the interesting thing about this conversation I ended up having with him was just how much we we spoke for an hour and a half and a lot of that ended up on the cutting room floor but we really talked about the trajectory of the business and and also his personal life and one of the things he brought up that you know I didn't ask him to say this or or even like nudge him on this but he talked a lot about when he was younger and he got really famous and had a lot of problems with intimacy and mm-hmm. that how that sort of manifested itself and how he had to address that when these accusations came out. Because a lot of these people, some of these people, I had never known that some of the people that he, that accused him, he 
knew those people over the course of several years. And it wasn't just like all one incident. Most of the people, I think everyone I spoke to, I spoke to, I believe, seven accusers had had one incident with him. It wasn't like a long-term thing. And he mentioned that a couple of them, or at least one of them was someone that he had known over the course of several years. So it ended up becoming more of a emotional conversation than I had expected because when, when his team reached out and wanted to do this story, it was very much about like, almost like they want to just clear the air, whether or not the industry Mm -hmm. is going to come back to him is another question, but they just wanted to sort of set the stage. And he had felt that he never really got to properly address what happened because it was just too complicated for him at that point. I mean, I think there were a lot of mistakes made on his side in terms of how they managed the response to the accusations. I think he just wanted to sort of correct that for his own peace of mind. But it, but in the end, what we ended up talking about were two major things. One is who he actually is as a person, which is not something that a celebrity feels very comfortable addressing, especially one who's private and who's personal life wasn't really a part of the conversation prior to 2019, who he dated, that sort of thing. And then the other part was just the extensive knowledge he has of his business. And, you know, one thing that I've, I've written about quite a bit at Puck in these last few months, it's really obvious to me now is like cancellation does not correlate with commercialization. (laughs) Like if you get canceled, quote unquote, if your brand gets canceled, you know, sometimes that doesn't have a great effect. And I would say in the US, he probably did get hurt a bit for a little while. But generally, it doesn't really affect whether consumers want to buy your stuff or not. If you have something they like, then they're going to buy it. We think consumers vote with their dollars more than they actually do. Yeah, I definitely thought it was interesting that Wang told you, in retrospect, he's now very aware of the fact that when he was asked to become creative director of Balenciaga, part of the reason they might have been interested in him is because he's Chinese-American. Of course, that ended up being a, a massive economic opportunity. Now it seems like that's something that he's aware of also himself with his personal brand in this post-cancellation period. Alexander Wang, the brand, has been really successful in Asian markets, in China. Um, and it really just goes to show while the U.S. and European markets are, are pretty mature at this point, there's still so much room to grow in China. But Lauren, I also wanted to ask you about this chatter around Francois Pinot, his company, obviously the, the second biggest fashion conglomerate, Caring, potentially being interested in buying CAA, which is the second biggest Hollywood talent agency. Our colleague Matt reported that it could sell for $7 billion. But first of all, why do you think that Pinot himself might actually want this asset? I think the first thing to remember is that this will not be caring buying CAA if it happens. It will be Group Artemis, which is the family office of the Pinot family. It was founded before caring was founded. It is where they put all of their investments in things other than pure luxury goods. They they own like Christie's, right? Yeah. The the most important thing is that they own Christie's, which they've owned since 1998. It operates totally separately from caring. One ex-Christie's executive said to me, it's a friendly alliance. At LVMH, you know, one company may outfit, a fashion company may outfit the employees of a jewelry company, that type of thing. There's like a lot of crossover, whereas this is is super, super separate. There's no extra Gucci auctions happening because 
Caring owns Gucci and Christie's does auctions of handbags, that sort of thing. Like it's, it's run very separately. And it's also Pino is the CEO of caring. He's not the CEO of Christie's. They have a, a different person doing that. And, and in the case of CAA, it will be run totally separately. There is obviously a benefit to being connected to one of the biggest talent agencies in the world. Caring brands work quite often. I went to this Gucci party a couple of months ago in New York and Pino and Salma Hayek, his wife, who's a CAA client were there and a ton of celebrities were just like hanging out around them. And when this news first surfaced, when Matt first reported on this a few weeks later, I realized that most of the talent that were at this Gucci party were CA talent. So there's definitely ways that they can work together. There are synergies if you want to use business jargon, but it's not going to be suddenly CA talent are only working with caring brands. Like it would just be detrimental to the overall CA business, it, especially as brand partnerships become even more important in Hollywood. But I think the main reason Pino wants to buy CAA is because he is very much about culture making. I mean, a lot of these French CEOs talk about this, like we're in the business of culture, luxury is culture. And so it makes sense. It's an attractive legacy asset that is very much tied to making culture in the modern age or whatever. So it definitely makes sense. I still think the amount of money that he supposedly is going to pay for it seems a little bit a little high to me, but I also know one one other bit is that Pinot owns a football club. He's very inter- interested in sport, and I think CAA's foothold in the sport element of talent representation, but also brand management. Like they manage the Formula One brand, which has just blown up and become really important to fashion in the last couple of years. I think that's a big part of it too. Yeah, as somebody who watches a lot of Formula One, there are definitely a huge number of fashion tie-ins these days. And, and of course, as you mentioned, CAA, they bought ICM Partners a few years back, which has a, a toehold in sports management and sports representation. Lauren, I'm curious, what do you think the response might be from LVMH? Because obviously, CAA would still be deeply involved in talent deals with brands like Prada, Chanel, etc., you mentioned the other day that LVMH spent more on marketing and selling expenses than Caring's entire revenue last year. How do you think that Bernard Arnault might respond to this? I don't think he's going to like it, but he would never, <laughs> I mean, sure. never say never, but I don't think he'd ever try to buy CAA. That's not his his way. He does own interests in a lot of media and and different things. And LVMH specifically is really diversified. They have hotels, they have a much bigger beauty business than they have 75 brands within LVMH. And then he has like several different investment arms. He has L Catterton, which is their private equity firm. He has LVMH Ventures where they throw in a million dollars into growing, fast growing small brands, that sort of thing. So he has a, his hands in a bunch of different things. He's quite competitive. Their rivalry goes back to when Caring, formerly known as PPR, swooped in and bought the Gucci group right out from under him in the late 90s. And obviously, he doesn't want Caring to win, but he tends to, especially in the cultural investments, tends to really stick with French companies. And I just don't think, 
I don't think he's going to try to like get in there. It doesn't, it, not in that way. But I do think, like you said, they, LVMH spent 28 billion euros on marketing and selling expenses last year. Caring did 20 billion euros in sales last year. So the amount of spending power, like the individual brands, their marketing budgets, they have a marketing budget where they pay talent, where they pay stylists, where they pay socialites, where they pay, they have so much money. And so CAA needs to keep in LVMH's good graces. You know, they have Dior, they have Louis Vuitton, they have Celine, these really big brands that really matter to celebrities in terms of elevating their personal brands and also their finances as you know, you're not making what you used to make even on an indie movie. And so you need to make money on these brand partnerships. And there's no way that CA is going to do this and jeopardize its relationship with LVMH. But it is interesting. I'd, I would love to know what Mr. Mr. Arnaud was thinking about it. But the one <laughs> thing I don't think he is thinking is, should I try to get in there? Because he's just, it's just not his way. Yeah, I would love to know what he's thinking too. Um, and Lauren, I guess to your point, when you have companies that are just this big, this global, this diversified, you know, it doesn't matter if Bernard Arnault and Francois Pinot are rivals, if their companies are rivals, at some level, they're going to be exchanging money. They're going to be in business with each other because how could they not be? But this is such a totally fascinating story. Lauren, keep us posted. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks as always, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.